my name is Mitch. I'm an alcoholic. Nice to be here with you guys tonight. Thank you for the opportunity to just do life and recovery with you guys. Um, you know, my story's not uh, all that different from anyone else's, um, though I guess some of the details might be unique. But I'll share with you maybe some of the highlights. Uh, I'm 41. I turned 40 in rehab. My sobriety date is January 3rd, 2015. And drinking has been part of my story since I was 17 years old. I grew up in a very religious family. Uh, My parents are staunch Southern Baptists from the South. And we moved to Salt Lake City when I was a kid. And uh, so a little red-headed Southern boy, you know, Southern Baptist kid in a Mormon community. Let me tell you, I fit. And most of my life, I've had that sensation of I didn't quite fit in. Uh, the more alcoholics I meet along the way, the more common I find that that sensation is. But for most of my life, I really thought it was me. You know, it was just me. And I kind of kept that a closely guarded secret. You know, I could portray myself on the outside to be someone. But in all reality, I was wearing a mask. I didn't want you to know the torment that I felt inside, the perpetual suffering that I was grappling with year after year after year of my life, uh, scrambling any way I could find to try to fit in somehow. If you knew my friends, um, they would tell you Mitch is a nice guy. He's laid back. He's funny. He's fun. He's great to be around. If you were to ask the honest me, you wouldn't have heard any of those things. You would have heard me talk about uh, how miserable I was, how little I liked myself, how low my self-esteem was. And over the years, I perfected the art of wearing the mask. I, I often joke with people that if I uh, could literally produce masks, like the type that I would wear, you know, one for each occasion, I would kind of have my own bat cave, you know, and the doors would open and there would be just shelves and shelves of masks. Because I had a mask for every different occasion, for every different relationship, uh, for every different circumstance. I could They were interchangeable. I could remove one and put on the next. I remember my wife, um, we would have conflict, of course, over the years with all my my drinking and my shenanigans, and um, she started to call me the manipulator because I would manipulate situations so effectively, and and that was one of my masks. So uh, I sobered up for the first time in October of 2010. I had... um, I guess the better part of, you know, 15 or 20 years of drinking and drugging. You know, drugs were part of my story. Um, I was in the Army in the early 90s when the whole rave scene first hit the the United States. And I got kind of swept up in that scene for several years. Got out of the military, kind of got out of that scene. But I kept on drinking. You know, alcohol was just always a part of my story from the first time I had it. I remember um, the first time I really drank, 
I was in basic training. I mean, I had sipped a few drinks trying to fit in with friends and be cool, but I wasn't really a drinker in high school. But I was in basic training at Fort Benning, Georgia. Uh, at the time, it was probably early to mid-August. And we had been in basic training just long enough for the drill sergeants to let us walk to church on our own. So even if you weren't a church-going individual, that was your opportunity to just get the hell out of there for a couple of hours and not be under their thumb. And so we would group up and and walk to church. Of course, we weren't allowed to have any alcohol or tobacco products or anything like that, but my, uh, my battle buddy had a pack of cigarettes. And so three of us took this shortcut through the woods to the chapel, and we stopped halfway along and went out in the woods and stripped half naked so we could smoke a couple of cigarettes and not smell like it. And as we're standing there smoking these cigarettes, I look over, and under this tree about 15 yards away, I see uh, this tall case of Budweiser. This is back when they made the 24 boxes of cans. and But it was kind of covered up with leaves resting under this tree. And I immediately thought, who covers up an empty box? So I walked over to this box of Budweiser and 21 of the 24 beer were still inside. Of course, they were South Georgia in the middle of the summer in the morning temperature. Uh, but three of us with 21 beer, we did the math really quick and we decided to have some fun. And in about 20 minutes, I killed my seven beer. Having not really had any drinking experience, we kind of crawled our way to the, the pizza parlor a mile away and sat there for about five hours trying to sober up. Uh, and I felt foolish. I felt scared. Um, gosh, the idea of getting in trouble, getting kicked out. I mean, all of that was racing through my mind. But at the very same time, simultaneously, I had this sense of invigoration, this excitement. This alcohol did something for me that I hadn't found before in my life. And I was hooked. I got to Panama early December 1993. That was my first duty station. And they put us in a unit for the first five or six days to teach us about the culture and the jungle and everything else. And our very first night, we went down to the NCO club, and they had to carry me back to the barracks. And I repeated that process every single night that I was there. It didn't seem strange to me that I was on my hands and knees out in the grass at 9 p.m. throwing up while people were in line waiting to come inside. Somehow in my mind, that seemed normal. And our motto down there was work hard, play harder. And that's exactly what we did. I learned to drink. And when I got out of the military... Uh, I was shocked and appalled to find out nobody at home knew how to drink the same way I did. And it never occurred to me I had a problem. I thought the other people that I was in relationship with had a problem with not being able to drink. It seemed ridiculous to me to stop after three or four or five drinks. That's just the warm-up. It didn't occur to me I had a problem all the way up until I checked myself into rehab January 3rd, 2015. When I went to rehab, uh, really I went to um, pacify my angry wife and to figure out what was wrong with me because I was convinced I had some form or many forms of mental illness. Still hadn't occurred to me I had a drinking problem. Everyone was suggesting I go to rehab, but I was going for the counseling aspect. I wasn't interested in stopping drinking for good. I had sobered up for before. I'd stayed sober for several years. 
life didn't seem to get any better. And so I thought, drinking has nothing to do with this. It's, I must have a mental illness. When I was in rehab, I don't know, it was my third or fourth day there, I ran into a fella I had met several years earlier. And he had been hired there on staff as the chaplain. We ran into each other in the hallway. And as a result of having had, already have, having this relationship established with him, I got a little bit of extra face time with him. And this is where my life took a turn. I sat in his office one day, probably like just about every other addict that goes in there and sits down and has that conversation. Uh, I expressed to him how uh, I was confused with the God issue. Uh, I was convinced that God was done with me, that he had forgiven me too many times. And one of the things I said to him, he grabbed hold of, I said to him, I feel like I've let God down. And he sat and looked at me for a minute, and then he asked me a question. He said, were you the one holding God up? And I thought about that question for a minute, and I realized that's pretty, uh, pretty prideful of me to think that anything the creator of the universe has going on is somehow dependent on me being present in the things I do. He asked me, why do you believe the things about God you believe? Is it because God showed up and behaved that way? He presented himself to you that way? Maybe uh, the burning bush spoke to you and told you these things? Or are these the things you believe about God because these were the things you were taught along the way and you've just accepted them as truth? And in that moment of honesty, having had 40 years of religious upbringing, I guess you could say, uh, as uncomfortable as my response was, I had to be honest and say, I don't really think I know God. And the immediate question that came after that was, well, then how can I trust him if I don't know him? And his response to me was uh, really simple. I want you for the next 30 days to keep your prayers very simple and just ask God that he would introduce himself to you as if for the first time. Forget the things you've been taught. Forget the things you think you know. Ask God to get to know him. And I thought, all right, this I can do. And so every morning, I had written a gratitude list. That's a whole other story that's kind of funny and definitely a God thing. But I had this gratitude list, this top ten list. And so every morning I would pray, God, I don't know you, but I'd like to get to know you. And thank you for, and I would go down my list every morning. And that was my prayer every day while I was in rehab. And over the course of the next couple weeks, I began to see things in a different light. My perspective began to change. Uh, We've all heard the term God shot, God moments. It's a God thing. I started to see these God things happen in my life. These, These people I would meet, circumstances, situations unfolding that I would not have predicted. I couldn't have manipulated them into place on my own. And over the course of the next month or so, me praying these prayers of gratitude, they expanded from just a simple, God, thank you for my motorcycle. God, thank you for my kids. God, thank you for my flip-flops. 
into God, thank you for the toys I have. Thank you for giving me the ability and, and the finances to, to own a few things to have fun with and to bless my kids and to bless my family. Thank you for the shoes on my feet. Thank you I don't live in a country where shoes are rare. Thank you I'm able to afford shoes. Everything just kind of expanded. And I realized one day, I've got a lot of things to be grateful for. And in that moment, my thinking went from I've got a lot to be grateful for to I have a lot of reasons to put my trust in God. Because I haven't done anything to, to earn his favor. But look at how many things he chooses to bless me with despite my good days or my bad days. And that began the relationship with the God of my understanding that I have today. Every morning now, or most mornings, I don't always get it right, but most mornings I sit out in the garage and have my cup of coffee and a few cigarettes because I haven't given up everything. And I don't sit and have deep philosophical conversations with the God of my not understanding. But I tell him thank you. And I usually start the conversation with, what do you want to do today? What can I do to collaborate with you? You've done so much for me. What can I do for you? I've realized now, as I continue down the road of recovery, that my prayers have changed from, God, I need you to do this. I need you to do that. Give me this. Give me that. I no longer treat him like the great vending machine in the sky. Today, I'm honestly grateful for the things in my life and for the adventure that my life has become in recovery. And I ask him for the opportunity to help him. And I ask that he help me stay out of the way. And I'm learning one day at a time to let God be God and let Mitch be Mitch. And my stress level has plummeted to almost non-existent. Fear is a thing of the past. Though I experience it still for a moment here and there, it doesn't consume me the way it used to. One of the things I've learned about myself, about really human beings, is that fear is the glue that holds on our masks. Without fear, I have no reason to put on a mask because I don't fear rejection, I don't fear isolation, I don't fear abandonment, I don't fear failure. And if that glue's not there, the mask won't stay. I just don't need it. So this was the foundation of my journey into recovery. Uh, the beginning of me taking the medicine, so to speak, that Dr. Bob prescribed. Trust God. Clean house. Help others. The trust God part I'm not sure I really did anything to make that unfold. Um, I learned to just be and let God be God. And over time, the trust developed as I saw life unfold. Today, uh, there's things in my life that happen just like anyone else that I may not particularly like. But today when I see a situation unfolding that I don't particularly like, I can look at it and the God of my not understanding that I trust, I believe has my best interests in mind. And so when something unfolds, 
that I'm not sure about, I may not like, makes me uncomfortable. I look at it and instead of saying, God, fix this, I look at it and say, God, help me change the way I feel so that I can work through this. A much harder aspect I found for me in my recovery was the clean house. Because I had spent so many years wearing that mask or those masks that I had come to a point where I struggled with being honest with myself. You know, the big book talks about there are those who are just constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. And I struggled with that. I had spent so much of my life living a lie. I had no idea how difficult it would be to live the truth. What I've learned over the last year and a half, in my art of wearing masks, my go-to mask the one I perfected the most, the one in the middle of my bat cave with all the light shining on it, is the mask of I'm not wearing a mask. The mask of honesty. If I could give people just enough honesty and transparency, they would think I was giving them everything. I was being completely honest, completely open. But I was always holding back that darkest part. The 12 steps have helped me as I've worked through the steps to dig out those deep, dark parts of me that I didn't want to acknowledge were there, that I was ashamed of, and to come to terms with who I am, what my defects of character are, and not just lay them on the table and ask God to remove them, but understand that If he chooses to remove them, he'll remove them in his time. And between now and then, I need to accept them. And learn to be okay with me right where I'm at. As I head down the road of growth. It was hard for me to be honest in clean house. Because my self-esteem had suffered so much. Over the 25 years of, of personal torment. It was so low that it was difficult for me to sit down with my sponsor even and admit to him the exact nature of my wrongs. I had no idea, though, how freeing that experience would be. And I think it probably took me about eight weeks to do my fourth step. You know, probably what I could have done in a day uh, took me more like 60 days, uh, because of fear, fear of what I would see, fear of what someone would think if I told them. And I sat down with him and I went down the list and it was a dirty list, like most of ours. And when I was finished, he looked at me and said, is that all? Thank God for the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and what it has done in my sponsor's life that he was able to be compassionate and kind and not judging and just let me be. And when it was all finished, he accepted me right where I was at. And that thousand pound weight of shame 
had fallen off one link at a time during that process. And suddenly, I don't know, I felt like I could run a little faster, jump a little higher. Uh, Something was different. Something was different. And it's remained different ever since. Today, I try to clean house on a regular basis. You know, there's there's really three kinds, um, three different ways over the over the years that I've worked on cleaning house. Because I'm I'm a sponge, I pick things up from other people. But you know, there's kind of three people when it comes to this. There's the people that are OCD and they they're clean freaks and they want to clean their house every day. You know, they can't can't have a speck. Can't have a spare paper towel laying on the counter. I mean, they've got to be on top of things. Um, historically, I'm not that guy. And then there's the people who, uh, you know, every week or two, the trash has finally piled up enough. Things have become cluttered enough that uh, it starts to get a little annoying. And so we spend a little bit of time cleaning up and get things tidy again. Historically, I've not been that guy. And then there's those people who, once a year, no matter what, whether it needs it or not, the house gets cleaned. You know, Historically, I've been that guy. But I've learned in uh, my recovery, first of all, not to take myself so seriously and to be okay with my shortcomings. And the process of cleaning house for me today is not nearly as uncomfortable as it used to be. I can sit down at the end of the day, the end of the week, whatever the moment calls for, and I can just look at myself and look at my behavior and look at my thought patterns, look at my motives. And I've learned to look at my resentments and say, what part have I played in this? Where do I need to go make an amends? Where do I need to sweep out the cobwebs a little bit? What do I need to do to keep my side of the street clean? And it's like anything else in life I've discovered. The more you do it, the easier it is. The less energy it takes. And uh, I don't know that it would be fair to say I enjoy the process. I think that would be a stretch. But it is rewarding. It is rewarding when I take the time regularly to clean up my messes when I wrong someone, when my filter doesn't work appropriately and something comes out of my mouth that shouldn't have, when I realize I've stepped on somebody's toes uh, or offended someone, even unintentionally, I am intentional about approaching that individual and making my amends promptly. Not just so that I don't have to carry that weight, but because today the motive behind my interaction with people, the way I treat people, the way I view people has changed. Today, my basis for living, my basis for being in relationship with others is to love and be loved. And if I've done something that cripples that ability for someone else, I need to step in and admit to my part of the problem and make my amends for their sake as well as mine. The biggest part of my recovery today that I didn't expect to be part of my recovery at all when I started this journey was the helping others part. 
I mean, honestly, I thought I trusted God most of my life. So even once I realized I wasn't trusting God because I didn't really know God, the idea of learning to trust God wasn't that foreign from me because I thought I was doing that anyway. Cleaning house. I don't know. I was so terrified of my drinking, what my life had become, how I was hurting people. Cleaning house just seemed like a no-brainer to me. I was so desperate to not feel the way I felt. I looked at something like that and thought, if that's what I've got to do to be sober and be sane, I don't have a problem with that. But helping others? I was selfish beyond selfish my entire life. Everything was about me. Even your problems were about me. I'd make them about me. The idea of helping others was foreign to me. I thought I was a compassionate person. I thought I was empathetic. I thought I loved people. But as I learned more and more who I was, I was able more and more to see my motives. And I realized the things I was doing for others, I wasn't doing in love or compassion. I wasn't doing it selflessly. I was doing it selfishly because I wanted something out of every relationship I had. It really came down to what can I get out of this relationship. When that part of me began to change, the doors began to open to work with others. My life today, and I, I share this often, uh, my life today is an adventure. I have no idea what my life will look like a year from now, and that's exciting to me. Because the truth is, my life looks absolutely nothing like it did two years ago. I'm not the same person I was two years ago. The things that were priorities to me then, I don't even think about most of the time. The things that I blew off and avoided are at the top of my list now. My calendar is full sun up to sundown, and almost nothing on that calendar was even on my radar two years ago. Speaking, teaching, writing, going to school, chairing meetings, being a dad who's not just physically present but emotionally present, and a husband who's actually engaged in the relationship. I had my own business for several years. Um, I've experienced success in the ways that I would want to experience success, but I never experienced fulfillment. And the thing I was lacking all these years that I never realized was purpose. And I was plagued by this overwhelming sense of a lack of identity. Today, I fill up my tank by helping others. I don't help others to fill up my tank. It's that unforeseen benefit of working with others. And it's helped me find purpose. Uh, now I'm going to school, studying counseling. And uh, something that really kind of cracks me up when I think about it is I actually work at the rehab where I was a patient not quite two years ago. And I found my niche in life. 
I love doing what I do. I'm one of those few people that gets up in the morning at a stupid early hour and fights rush hour traffic for 30 miles with a smile on my face so I can go hang out with a bunch of drunks and addicts and listen to, listen to them BS themselves for the next six hours and then fight that rush hour traffic for another hour coming home with a smile on my face and when I get home I get to say thank you God that I get to do what I do today. My past is not my greatest regret anymore. My past has become the sharpest tool in my toolbox. The big book talks about this idea that we don't lock away our past. We don't regret it nor wish to shut the door on it. It becomes, for me, every day, the very most necessary tool that I have to work my way through the emotional and physiological barriers that alcoholics and addicts create, just like I did, to be able to reach them right where they're at, love them right where they're at, and share my experience, strength, and hope, and plant seeds and see lives changed. What a wild ride. What an amazing journey. This mess that I was today is the very thing that God, as I understand Him, uses to affect change and bring a glimmer of hope to the lives of other alcoholics and addicts. It just cracks me up. I was such a hot mess two years ago. Blows my mind. But the God that I believe in, the God as I understand him or don't understand him, really likes alcoholics and addicts like me. Because when I get to a place in my life where the mask exercise is futile, and I learn to trust him, not just with my present and my future, but also with my past, He uses me in ways that I would have never imagined. And it's fun. It's exciting today. Today things look different. Today I get to stop on the way out of the Circle K, grabbing my smokes on the way into work, and have a five or ten minute conversation with the homeless drunk that's sitting there waiting for a handout. Today my phone rings with concerned, frustrated, terrified parents who have a teenager that can't get off of alcohol or drugs and they want my experience, strength, and hope. Today people call me and email me and write me and show up at my door looking for purpose and looking for peace. And those were two things I never had in my life all the way up to two years ago. And today those things are the foundation of who I am. Purpose and peace. Today I don't think about drinking. I don't think about picking up a drug. I don't think about stepping over the drink and doing a lot of things I used to do. I don't need to. 
I still have feelings, and sometimes those feelings are uncomfortable. I still get frustrated. I still have to deal with the IRS. They still send me letters. And it still pisses me off sometimes. Okay, every time. But I've learned, like the big book says, that nothing in this universe happens by mistake. And if I choose to believe that God, as I understand him, will make all things work together for my good, then even the situations, circumstances, people, places, and things that I don't particularly care for, I can watch those things work together to bring me to another place, a place of growth, a place of confidence, and most importantly, a place of purpose and a place of peace. I don't need to drink today because the black hole is all but gone. I don't need to mask myself. I don't need to cover over feelings because this program has taught me to be intentional in how I live and to practice these principles in all my affairs, even the moments when I don't want to, I get to. And time after time after time, I come through those moments a little bit stronger, with a little bit more peace and a little bit more firm grasp on who I am and why I am. I know as a fact I wouldn't be who I am today. I wouldn't enjoy life the way I do today. I wouldn't get to do the things I do today if it wasn't for the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12 steps that my sponsor helped walk me through, the steps that I resisted, the steps that I argued, the steps that I wanted to modify, customize, do it my way. He was patient enough to just let me kick and scream a little bit until I became willing to take suggestions. And then my world changed completely. I have no idea what the next year, few years of my life will look like. I have no idea if I'll still be sober. But I know today I'm sober because I've made the choice to be sober today and to do the things I need to do today to stay sober. Tomorrow when I wake up, I fully intend to do the same thing. And tomorrow morning, I'll say, God, what do you want to do today? And I'll remind myself as I speak to him, not my will, but your will be done. Help me stay out of your way. And God willing, if he gives me another day tomorrow, I'll find the same purpose I found today. And it all began when I went and checked myself into that rehab and they handed me my first copy of the book, Alcoholics Anonymous. That's, that's all I got. Thanks,